0: i oh, oh, Boyles and ghouls welcome to a very special interview episode of dads from the crypt today i'm interviewing director producer stephen hopkins welcome to the show hi how are you good how are you doing great i'm in lovely london where i've been working the
1: last couple of years and i'm living here again now and uh trying to remember all about all those years ago back in the 80s and 90s here we go. yeah
0: you're uh, definitely one of the most prolific Tales from the Crypt directors with three episodes, um, and we'll get to those in just a minute. But let's get some background. Uh, you, so I saw you grew up in Jamaica.
1: I was born there, and brought up there a little bit, and then uh, went around America for a while. I was in Britain for most of my schooling. Went to New York in the when I was 21, 22, to to direct videos and stuff. I was directing videos in London, and then I went out to Australia for. A month, which turned into five years, hmm. and then Los Angeles and New York, and then back here again. There we go.
0: We're a full circle. Um, what was the first movie you remember seeing?
1: Uh, the first movie I remember seeing as a kid was Goldfinger. Ooh. I think. And I was born in Jamaica, and I was actually born. But next, we're next, Ian Fleming was our next-door neighbor. Oh, cool! And, uh, and uh, the beach that that Bond and Sir Andrews came out on Our Beach at the time. I've got a great photo of myself as a three-year-old with the two of them, and uh, so I became a big James Bond fan and a Sean Connery fan, and um, as a four-year-old. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so I think the first yeah, I think the first film I was taking to the cinema to see was Goldfinger, which is probably inappropriate for someone of my age, but I think the same year was also the Batman film. Yeah, the great. Yeah, the Adam, the wonderful one with Adam West and all the, uh, the madness. So.
0: The shark repellent.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I grew up. We we travelled around the states a lot. I didn't go to school, so I just grew up reading comics in America, and which is how I learned to read. I think, which explains all about my filmmaking stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, that's a good question. So what what were your early comic books that you were reading?
1: Oh, well, these were in the early 60s, so it was really Marvel when it started. I, I didn't sort of, I wasn't so into DC then. Um, I, I have a collection of about 20,000 comics, just, just which wow. travel traveled around the world me. But so, yeah, it was all the really early uh, Daredevils and Hulks and Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, of course. And, you know, and it was interesting looking back at those now because they're such a time capsule of America, I think. And uh, yeah so I, I and that's really how I started to read because I was just in the back of the car a lot so as we were traveling around the States
0: mm-hmm. cool and so how did you get to filmmaking
1: um, I was drawing comics for underground comics. I used to draw comics for underground comics here I did some splash pages for Marvel UK and I went to art school uh, here which uh, my comic Drawing ability wasn't really respected there <laughs> and uh i was doing album covers for people like adam and the ants and different punk bands and stuff and then i walked onto a film set one day with actually the, i met the amazing russell Mulcahy, who was directed several of your episodes and mm-hmm. still my like best friends i think and uh i said that i could do storyboards and, and offered to to do them for free to start with which unfortunately they took me up on and uh I think the first storyboards I ever did on a film set were for Duran Duran, Planet Earth, I think, and then we just—I did after I did hundreds of videos, but it started off because I could draw comics. I, you know, drew storyboards for rock videos. It was kind of an easy, sideways
0: slide, I think. Hmm. Um, and then what was the first movie like? Uh, did you? How did you get into like actually being a filmmaker? From there.
1: Uh, well, from there, I I. know everything exploded at that time i happened to be in the right place at the time time i went straight from doing storyboards into designing sets and coming up for ideas and designing sets for you know the first year did 120 videos you know we do 100 every year and and i would just be racing around sometimes i have two or three sets in different stages at different times and i just you know lied a lot and said oh yeah i can do that yeah i can do that yep yep i do that and then (laughs) you got away and then i thought you know i'm just doing loads of ideas and sets for directors and their job looks really easy so I'll do their job instead and uh, and it wasn't as easy as I thought and then I started directing my first videos in London in the early 80s and I moved to New York because there was a gap there with the company I was working with and I started directing there and and then doing big you know quite big sets at that time and even though I was was very young but it was just lucky and then i Went out to Australia from New York to do a bunch of Elton John videos and he decided to get married to a woman, which was bizarre. And I got stuck there for a while and fell in love with Sydney and and a girl and 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 it was really it was a great place, the ideas, because all the bands were living there then, you know, Duran Duran and Elton John and because it was tax-free and stuff, and there were a lot of great music coming out. So I just stayed there and worked there a lot doing um off videos and commercials and, and a couple of big musicals, which I wrote and directed, and and then uh and touring with Big Jagger and, and different bands doing their live stuff. And then I eventually came across to uh Russell who asked me to design Highlander, which oh, wow. I didn't think I didn't think I was good enough to do. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 25 or something, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So and then, uh, but it, I said oh, I can't do that, Russell. I said I wouldn't know where to start, really. But he said, "Can you come and do second unit?" So I went and did second unit on the Highlander for for months and months, and that was just a great experience. And I ended up, of course, working with Sean Connery a lot because I would end up shooting a lot of his stuff because uh, he didn't have much time. So if the first unit couldn't do it, I would go in and cut his head off and <laughs> do a big fighting scene between him and the Kurgan, and you know, just follow Russell around and. And learn from him and fill in the gaps mm-hmm.
0: and then how did you make the transition to uh dreamchild
1: well I, I i was sort of quite a successful commercials and and rock video director then and then i did a small film called dangerous game in australia which turned out quite well i think but <laughs> mm-hmm. the amazing lack of money had but we did we you know it was just we if we needed a piece of equipment, we'd make it in those days. And that showed in Cannes. And then um and then a bunch of uh, American producers saw it in Cannes. It was kind of a you know, kind of creepy, interesting action film, I think. And um and then I was invited to LA a lot. I went to lots of different meetings. I was gonna do Pet Cemetery at one point. Oh, and wow. then that didn't happen. And then I just got a phone call from New Line to come in and and uh, they'd seen the film, that film, and they said, you know, here's a bunch of scripts because it was a writer's strike on mm-hmm. and uh, make something out of that. So <laughs> I got that job in uh, Valentine's Day, whatever year that was, 87, 88, I'm saying, 88?
0: Yes, are, yeah, one of the... In um, like, so 88 probably. Yeah.
1: So, and, uh, and then it was out in 4,000 cinemas in August. So we just... In fact, I was shooting after we finished mixing it. And we were just shooting and shooting and shooting, and uh, and I, you know, because there was no final script and weren't allowed to work with too many writers. I added some fun things like Super Freddy and you know and all these kind of you know <laughs> extra like fun things that things I wanted to try out, which i had sort of done in rock videos. But uh,
0: yeah, I was wondering because it, it has a lot of your voice in it, I think, but you were not credited as a writer on it, so I figured there was something. It was probably some guild or you know union thing
1: i i don't think i really, i mean the actors and i did make up some of the dialogue but there was a story you mm-hmm. know but but yeah it, it expanded you know a lot you know i don't think many people have built the inside of someone's womb as a sex before <laughs> so it was pretty
0: <laughs> actually I, I, todd masters told me about doing that when he did uh, look who's Talking. You have to do, like, a little oh, bit right. a baby. So it happens more often than you think. He says he has, like, oh, a right. closet of prosthetic babies <laughs> in his, uh, <laughs> his studio. Um, Now, for the dream child, was a big tonal shift from uh, Elm Street 4. That, that movie was very bright and colorful. It was co- it's always called, like, the MTV um, Elm Street movie, where yours is very moody and gothic and expressionistic. Was that something that New Line wanted? Uh, was that something you brought to the table? How did that kind of come about?
1: I think Bob Shea and uh, said uh, and Rupert and Rachel they they said they thought it would become too comedic mm. the series, so we thought we'd go back to do. I mean, it was still camp, obviously, but we uh, they right. thought the friends would become a bit of a stand up, and they just wanted to go, you know, back. But I think I don't think they were expecting sort of the big. Gothic thing that I had to go at because, you know, in, being European, we just want gargoyles everywhere and, <laughs> and horror things. And, so.
0: and all the impossible stairways going up and down.
1: Yeah, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. And he had no time to think. So, I mean, was, we just shot in a shoe, empty shoe factory in Culver City. And, mm. and we just shot and shot and shot and shot. And, and that's what came out. Uh,
0: now, this movie has the lowest number of freddy kills but also has like some of the most biggest and most memorable like if they're like huge set pieces was that an intentional did they say we want to do less kills but bigger does that just happen organically
1: i think that was yeah i, I don't remember that being a part of any agenda
0: at all i think uh no
1: i, I didn't realize that so no
0: right i mean exactly yeah, it only has three uh, but it has the the, the damn motorcycle and the Greta feeling are two of the most disturbing, I think, kills in cinema. Like, feeding someone their own guts and then mm-hmm. having someone fusing to a motorcycle in this, like, body horror, like Cronenbergian manner. They're, they're both very dark and disturbing.
1: We got a lot of shit from the MPAA. We had to really, I just do so many different versions and cut so much bits and pieces out. Not as much as Predator 2, but we. They just were bringing in this new system, you know, and they wanted to try it out on someone. <laughs>
0: um, and then, so also I can tell a lot of the character of Mark. I think it reflects a lot of you. Did you write, draw, draw those comics that he has? Did you hire someone to do that?
1: Oh uh, gosh, I can't remember now. Because I used to do my own storyboards, mm-hmm. uh, but then... I didn't have the time uh, to do them really properly so we would bring the storyboard artists in and i can't remember if i end up drawing comics or i mean i remember drawing them out i'm not sure if i gave them to someone else mm-hmm. to finish yeah, that was in fact 35 years ago so yeah well, i can't tell you yeah.
0: yeah do you still have any of them
1: um somewhere in the storage here i have endless boxes of all my storyboards i'm someone someone's writing a little uh, me and a part of a book about me in France at the moment, and they're asking me to find all this stuff. And I'm going, I know it's in there somewhere, but it's a mountain of stuff, and I I have to. I'm not sure if I can find any of it. I mean, I found it over the years because I've moved around so much, but I finally had everything brought from all my storage in New York and LA and everywhere, and to here, so it all ended here. Now I'm unpacking it and seeing what's there. But yeah, I mean, I for part of the two, I did 1100 pages of storyboards oh um, and a, a lot of color and there was a sequence there which was an ultraviolet, so I did that in black ultraviolet color. And those days, I used to take it very seriously because it just really helped me and I, and I still do it a bit but now it's sort of ingrained in my, you know, in my thinking. So I don't do it as much. Mm. I do it for visual effects sequences and stuff. And obviously, Freddie, there was all visual effects sequences really.
0: Um, yeah no you need to get like a a, um, a coffee table book or something of your storyboards that'd be amazing you need to get like a find find some teenager with some time over a break and just have them catalog everything uh, um I don't all know right look people would find them that interesting but there you go Oh, i think i think we would <laughs> um all right let's let's move on to predator 2. this is actually one of my favorite predator movies I mean the first one it was just groundbreaking in its own but as far as just Fun in action. Uh, it's funny because I, my parents wouldn't let me watch those movies when I was that age, but they let me read the comic book. So I read the comic book before I saw the movie. Oh, um, the
1: Dark Horse comic was it? Was it Dark, Dark Horse,
0: Horse, yeah, Dark Horse. Because yeah, I had like the Alien Three Dark Horse comic, and then the Predator Two Dark Horse, Horse comic. Who
1: drew that? Was it was that Ross Andrew drew that? Who drew that? I remember I meeting the artist who was going to do it, and because I, while I was filming, I was talking to him about the style and stuff like
0: that. I don't know the name off the top of my head. I have it in storage somewhere as well in my like small comparatively collection. Um, but yeah, let's, I want to hear So I've, I've read a lot of crazy rumors about that movie. So I want to substantiate a couple things. Um, were you really pelted by bags of feces in some of the LA uh, shooting locations?
1: Yeah. And and bottles, glass bottles of urine too. (laughs) It's still there. It's called shit alley. It's in downtown LA. A lot of people still film there. Oh, really. and over the years and and well I did twenty-four down there too and I got the same thing happened because they just get they just don't want you making noise all day because it's just annoying. So mm-hmm. and we actually got shot at on the roof too. I was shooting a scene where Danny Glover was a you know chasing the predator across the rooftop. And yeah, he was firing blanks and then we cut cut and the shooting carried on. We looked out across the roof opposite, there's a guy in an underpants just firing his gun at us because we were making too much noise. And, oh
0: my god in the, did you find a dead body in that alley as well?
1: Yeah, we did, we cleared out an alley because we did that scene where we filled it with water where the predator met
0: King Willie, and
1: then, yeah, we, I mean, down there, you know, so you know, um, someone who'd overdosed or something like that,
0: yeah. Um, wow, that's intense. Um, yeah, and then, in LA, different
1: then as it is now, that's for sure.
0: Well, yeah, <laughs> LA, yeah, LA early nineties is a bit different than it is now. Yeah. Um, Now, whose idea was it to put the Predator skull in the trophy case?
1: Uh, The alien skull, you mean? or Mm -hmm. The
0: The xenomorph.
1: Well, it it was, um, you know, Stan was doing it, and and I was a part of trying to revamp the Predator for that second sequence. You never saw the spaceship in the first one, right? Not inside it. And we had Larry Paul, you know, this great designer. But then Stan, you know, we did the version without, and Stan said, look what I've got. <laughs> and so we thought we have got to stick it. They're both Fox things, and uh, and I remember Fox were offering me to do Fox for uh, Alien Three at the time. But I thought I can't do Nightmare Five, Predator Two, Alien Three all in a row. I mean, it's just <laughs> too much.
0: And, I, I would um, see that movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, yeah, so it was. I mean, it's a natural. It's a great idea, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, and, it's amazing. It's
1: then, just- we did. We just show a glimpse of it in the end. I think really, it wasn't like a full on. We didn't show it too. weren't showing it off too much, right? It's just sort of seen there quickly. I think.
0: Yeah, but it's the kind of thing that like people pick up on, and it just explode. It's just mind blowing that these are in the same universe. That yeah. makes it makes too much sense. Wow. Yeah. Was were you were you ever considered for doing another Predator movie or even an Alien versus Predator movie?
1: No, I never heard from anyone about. It. I don't think at the time Predator Two wasn't considered a huge hit. I think, but it, over the years, it's made a lot of money. I think. And, so, so, but at the time it was sort of, um, you know, it's it was going to be Arnold originally, Arnold and Danny Lover together. Mm. And the opening scene originally was on a golf course and there's this white-haired guy playing golf and a helicopter lands and someone comes out and you find out it's Arnold with white-haired scar across his face and they're and, uh, bringing him back in. And I met with Arnold about it, and, but in the end it became uh, a choice. For him, between Terminator Two and Predator Two, and I mean,
0: there's that's no choice, right? We're got to do Terminator Two, right. one of the best science fiction films ever made, I think so. right? Well, it also, I think he he also did to um, be Kindergarten Cop around that time, because there's a great right. teaser for Kindergarten Cop, because because the that mimicked the Predator Two trailer. Where it talks about like you know they can't be reasoned with, they can't be bargained with.
1: <laughs>
0: and you, know, you think it's a you think it's for the Predator movie or some, some another Arnold movie, right. and it turns out it's little kids. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: um, it, He's such a smart guy, Arnold. He's very yeah. very bright. He's,
0: oh yeah. Now again, Predator Two was a as we know is a Joel Silver uh, production, and uh, you know we've talked about Joel Silver's antics, and I think uh, our friends Alan Gill just released another episode. Talking about Joel Silver, do you have any good Joel Silver stories from Predator Two? Well,
1: I worked with Joel a bunch of times, obviously, and he in those days he was he just really was such a force to be reckoned with. But I think he, yeah, he was he was mischievous and he was doing Die Hard Two, which was causing Fox a lot of problems at the time, I think, financially. And he he, he would fight, had big fights with Fox, and eventually he was actually taken off the lot during the film and wasn't allowed around for a long time, but he, he came in for the sound mix. But uh, he, he knows those films back to front, you know, and obviously when he called me up to do the uh, Tales with him and Bob Zemeckis and Walter Hill and everyone, and then you know, he, had to, he had to, it was, he knew that it was going to be a lot of production value and it was going to be outrageous. And Tales of the Crypt was certainly outrageous. I, I don't think I've ever worked on something where HBO and Joel at the time would just make ask you to make it more violent and more <laughs> sexual. Because <laughs> I've never shied away from those things, but I've never been encouraged to take it further. You know,
0: so. Yeah, let's transition to that. um so uh, Joel Silver was the one that asked you to do that. Did they give you a choice of episodes to do, uh, or did you like say, uh, were you familiar with EC Comics as a comic book fan?
1: Yes, I wasn't. I wasn't uh, super knowledgeable about it, but um, uh, but I mean, I I remember them quite clearly, and I remember I've still actually got some covers from with Mark for Haydon. It was a Mark Pine. I think oh
0: difficult um oh um oh i'm blinking right now uh it's uh uh it's on the tip of my tongue i don't know i can't remember this So
1: alex saviak alex saviak did some storyboards for me for the reaping years later uh oh. yeah they were they were really they were really fun and, and i out there i think i i can't remember if i was given a choice or not i remember i have read a bunch of those scripts over the years uh, I think I might have been like, given a choice between a couple of different
0: ones. Okay, it was Mike so, Vosberg that's who did those covers.
1: Mike Vosberg, there we
0: yeah, go. It was like it was on the tip.
1: Great guy. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. He's still going at it too. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they so they brought you on to Ebra Cadaver. Um yeah. and then uh, you did you cast that or is that kind of handed to you? Or did you give you like a list?
1: No, yeah, we we were given a list and you know Tony Goldwyn and Bo Bridges, and I worked with all the Bridges,
0: actually, I worked with Bo
1: and Jeff and oh. Lloyd. Mm. So, and uh, But, yeah, you know, it's great to have that kind of caliber of actor. You oh, know, yeah. you do kind of fun stuff, and I had this great cameraman, DB Isaacs, and um, um, and it was such a fun story. God, it was fun. And right. It was well, probably, the- probably the best of the three, maybe, you know, in, in all that I did, or the most the one that just fell together at the end you
0: know the, uh, the best it did and it, yeah it's that's definitely the most intense because they're, they're like you, you're putting someone in the view uh, in the shoes of Carl's character who's you know comatose, yeah. still but still uh cognizant. and that's kind of a t- you did a really good job of putting us like in the POV of that and like putting it, putting us in that mindset um so it's probably the scariest i, th- I think the second one's the funniest but we'll, we'll get to that in a second but um I love Bo Bridges' performance because you know, as you see him. He usually plays the kind, like the kind father character, or maybe a lawyer. But this is just him really hamming it up, and he, he seems like he's really enjoying it.
1: Well, he had such an amazing career, Bo. He started off as a really hip actor, you know, and a, and a, and a sort of sex symbol and that kind of stuff. And then he he moved into something gentler, and then later on in his career he became a bad guy and everything, right? It was, but but, you know, the key, the fine line you walk with the tails is not to be so silly. You go, shut up, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, but at the same time, not to be too serious because that's the same problem. So you have to sort of find a middle ground and, and tell the story and, you know, and try not to telegraph the twists, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes that's hard to do, but they're, well, they're only 25 minutes long, are not they? So...
0: Right, so yeah, yeah, you, you, you have to get in and out really, uh, really well. Yeah. And uh, again, you your episode's interesting because it's a flashback or like a, like kind of a preamble, and you don't usually have time for that. So you even like that—that's rather ambitious for a Tales episode to have that little black and white beginning part. Yeah, which we
1: actually shot in black and white because I was such a you know a princess.
0: I think. <laughs> oh. Um. Yeah, and again, you got some good gore in there. You have that that great kind of shocker in the in the opening, um, which you know uh, is a good is a good little jump scare. I think. Hmm. Um. Any other uh, fun memories from that episode?
1: Uh...
0: oh, Did you have time to storyboard any of these, or is it just too quick?
1: God, good question. I think I probably sketched a bunch of stuff. Because there weren't a huge amount of visual effects in that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: pretty more, you know, if you're dragging someone along the ground, we drag the camera around the ground with the camera in hand, so it wasn't it wasn't very fancy. But
0: well, you have to do a lot of blocking because you don't want to give away the gags that you know he's actually on you know, the um, that he's not on the hook or that you know that he, that they're not yeah. actually taking out his brain. So you have to be really you have to very carefully block what you're showing.
1: Yeah, you you we were well aware of making the audience
0: do the imagination,
1: you know, imagining mm-hmm. how gross it was, you know, and trying not yeah. to show too much. And uh, but yeah, it was a perfect tale of the crypt, right? There's dead bodies, it's a morgue. Yeah, you, know, you know, mad scientist, you're getting your head chopped off, mm-hmm. uh, having heart attacks, and dying. I mean, it, it's just all, you know, it's all what tells the crypt for me from
0: April, mm-hmm. isn't it? Really? Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's talk about Beauty Rest again. Another, I think, really funny episode. Um, the Ballbuster perfume commercial is I hilarious.
1: Alan, I think Alan Silvestri scored these for me too, right? I
0: think. I think, yeah, I think he definitely did Beauty Rest. I can't remember if he did the other ones, but he, he, did a he lot definitely
1: of them. did. He did the, five, the third one I did with uh, Mimi Rogers.
0: That was mm-hmm. the last one. I
1: did. And does, uh, uh is Beauty Rest that one or
0: Beauty Rest the second, is the second one?
1: Actually, the second one I shot was. Um, was the one in the staircase one. Was, uh, well, at
0: least s- season wise, that was the third that came out in the sixth season. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah, right. Beauty Rest, I think, was four or five. I think it was four. Yeah, it was four.
1: Well, Beauty Rest was uh, a riot. I mean, Alan did that. And one of the reasons I remember Alan working on that with me is because Buck Henry, the song, there's a song mm-hmm. in that yep. that in the script. And Buck, I was dying to work with Buck Henry. I'm such a huge fan. And, uh, uh, and he just came up with this hilarious idea and these words for a, for an MC song for the thing. And Alan came down and they just they composed it on the spot and they recorded it. And that was kind of a high point, I think. But also, you know, working with the the rather fabulous Mimi Rogers, who I worked with later again, and Jennifer Rubin and Kathy Allen. I mean, all these beautiful, interesting women. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was very gothic and burlesque wasn't it it was sort of like berlin 1930s grotesque and uh and it was good it was it was sort of well it was uh yeah we could spend a lot of money on the club because there wasn't much else in it you know there was backstage and things like that and uh and all the jealousy and stuff and that and you know and i remember once again you know just being encouraged you know show as much you know, nudity shows much blood, have, you know, guts falling out of people's things It just, you know, they couldn't get enough of it. And it was, um, and, uh, but you know, working, being able to buck Henry and Alan on something so bizarre made it feel like an art piece or something, yeah. felt like a crazy art piece with all these you know, fantastic filmmakers. And we just laughed a lot, you know?
0: Oh yeah. And, it's, uh, it's, it's very, this is like one of the best dark humor episodes. Yeah, um, yeah, it, and um, it's interesting that we say it's timeless because again, you're you're adapting comics from the '40s to be contemporary, but you but it still has like the, ge- the genetics of those original comics, so it already has a kind of a timelessness feel to it, right? Uh, which is very, which yeah. always makes it you interesting.
1: You didn't want to date them too much, these mm-hmm. comics, and but yeah, you obviously have no choice. It was the '90s, right? So, but. But to, uh, I think each one I did was quite different from the other ones, surprisingly. Yes. They all have the same formula, you know, of a twist at the end and right. and, and people who are horrible people getting their just desserts, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, but the thing about those uh, shows that almost everyone's horrible in them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's hard to find a good person. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, Again, like that ballbuster perfume gag is—it's so funny, and over the top. Like, they actually, have a perfume with balls on it. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, I did. A, I did a House of Lies episode years later. <laughs> it was so. I'm not sure if I have to say this, but we did a we did a perfume called "Cunt," and it was. <laughs> a <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, know, you want you want to do something outrageous and and make a bit of a comment uh, at the same time if you can. Ballbusters, yeah, you know, have a funny.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have any good stories with working with Mimi, Jennifer, or Kathy?
1: Uh well, yeah, it was all very quick in those days. I think we shot them in six days. Mm-hmm. You know, I remained friends with Jennifer for a long time and and then Mimi did lost of space with her years later. And uh but they're all up for it. You know, they're, they're, everyone who got into those things knew that you had to leave your your taste sensibilities behind mm-hmm. a little bit. And and uh just get into it and and because often they were such short shoots we would often shoot them relatively in order which is very helpful you yeah know, because and you know especially with all the blood and guts you didn't want to have someone with entrails coming out and then go back and shoot the wrong thing and stuff like that but they let you know everyone was just up for it yeah you know? and then not only were the ladies up for it we were just all killing ourselves laughing the whole time but then you know buck just steps forward and Sings this song
0: and you go, oh, is, <laughs> that's so is, good. I'll never do anything like this again. And there we go. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, but, the, the the at the very end is that Mimi Rogers with a prosthetic? Or is that a life cast?
1: Um, I know there was obviously a life cast, <laughs> but well, I'm trying to I'm like trying her... I remember. I, I think did we stick a head through? I think we. It was at face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because so, otherwise. Because not only does she have to,
0: like, stay in position, but she has to, like, stay in it, I'm sure, for take after take while listening to the song and trying not to laugh.
1: Yeah, and then we do these big crane movements and stuff like that. So they're all, it was all, yeah, she's very patient, I think, but understood the impact of it.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. It's it's an amazing ending. And, again, that's the prop department. Props, again, props to the prop department because you have the Miss Autopsy sign. I'm I'm curious if that's, like, in someone's, like, home garage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they have like their own like pool table and stuff that'd be nice to imagine where he, that's even, right picking,
1: now. even picking the crowd was fun you know we would just pick the, the the strangest looking people and and the costume design was very smart and that was a different camera Rick Boto wasn't it
0: I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. yeah he did a lot of them yeah um, alright then let's talk about your third episode Stared in Horror um, again you have I, I'm not sure if I know her name uh, Rachel is it Ten. T- 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 yeah. Yeah. I've that's, yeah, that's,
1: I I seen, a, I seen a bunch of stuff including Total Recalls. Yeah. And um, I, I didn't know DB very well, but he was fun. And then I was kind of excited about working with you know, Ali Ermi, who, yeah. was, who was that guy. But we built a huge set for that on stage. I remember it was a big, you know, built all the swamp and the house. We did map paintings and glass shots and Mm. did you gloss or just matte paintings in those days, I think too, to make it bigger and better. But they were big sets, you know, and the inside of the house we built as well, you know, with the stairs and all that kind of stuff. And Mm. it was probably the most, in a way, complicated story to be told. The others were a bit more straightforward and or maybe the others were more more organic or something. This was trickier to explain without giving away everything without telling the audience what was gonna happen. You had to give clues and you had to be quite precise about the clues without going, ta-da, you know, and
0: Yeah, I watched I it
1: where all the episodes were they
0: copies of the comics or well, they were at least at the very least they were based on the title and they might just have like it might be like, okay, this this is the title one that was in the same asylum. We're gonna use the title, we're gonna put the same asylum, every everything else could be different. So but I know at least your first I haven't read the comic for the third one because we haven't covered it yet, but the first two were relatively close to the comics.
1: Oh, they were. I, I don't think I actually saw the comics.
0: Okay. I just
1: saw the scripts. I because I, I think they told me at the time that they weren't exactly based, so I didn't uh, maybe I didn't have the time or didn't think it was necessary yeah. to them.
0: it's usually like the main concepts. So I'm sure in the comic there's a stairwell and there's something about you know going up and down, making you older younger. Yeah. Look, like, I watched it I, yeah. for the, the first.
1: stage of that episode is people are going up and down those stairs all the time. You know, so it becomes right. like a standard commercial. So you know, you have to try and find a different way to tell each bit of the story. I think.
0: Yeah, because so I watched it, I think for the first time the other night, um, and I was very, I was like, kind of confused, a little disorientated about what was happening until you know you wanted us to understand. I right. what is going on. Uh, yeah, again, I think
1: that, that's a bit of the problem with that one. The other two had their own beats, mm-hmm. their own murders and excitements and this happens and, and then now you're scared of being caught or whatever. And the didn't really have that, did it? It was just one long sort of tease until the ending, I think.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely a build up. Did Rachel have issues with all that makeup? because um, it seemed like a lot to be to kind of act through.
1: She she'd wear worn all the makeup before we discussed it, you know, and and uh, as you know, like lighting makeup is quite tricky nowadays. It's so much easier because nowadays you put CGI on top of makeup and, and mm. whatever. But in those days, everything was shot on film, obviously, and um, and even though we had a reasonable amount of money for everyone, you shot quite quickly. So doing makeup stuff in Tails was always the tricky bit. It had to be really good, and if it wasn't really good, you'd light it so you couldn't see it that well, you know, and uh, and, and hope that HBO didn't pump tons of light into it later on and make sure you could see all the nasty joint, you know. But obviously, I've done lots of makeup stuff with Freddie and Predator and everything, so I knew something about that.
0: Mm-hmm. And again, this is one where oftentimes the cover that the Cryptkeeper shows Keeper be- shows during the, uh, the preamble Kind of gives away or gives you clues and this is one where right. like I'm like wait there's a baby in it and I couldn't figure out what the baby meant until oh. the very very end you're like oh right yeah that's
1: true actually I think I think even some of the titles would give away stuff wouldn't they I think not yeah. only cover, they were a bit they were a bit dangerous but hey now you know people watch these things for fun didn't they? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I think people just got really stoned in those days and watched it late at night, and a lot. And
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. it was definitely um, a, a series, right? Were, were you intimidated by uh, working with Emery?
1: No, no, I don't think so. He was a very nice guy. He was very, he, you know, he, he says like, "I'm not an actor. I'm just like you know, and you and he was a very nice guy. He wasn't, he wasn't tough or mean or anything. I'd work with tougher guy than that before that's for sure and since but, but it's uh, no no I, all the actors I, I think I mean it's a good point because I think all the actors came in knowing it was fun mm-hmm. you know no one came in like it was it was going to make or break their career or they had to take it too seriously you know they came in and thought oh what are we going to do so, you know they and, and with all those wonderful producers you know from Gil to Joel to Robert to Walter to everybody I mean it's just such a a wealth of expertise that people took it seriously at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. And I saw that Was
1: it successful at the time tales,
0: I'm sorry. Was it, was it a successful series at the time? Oh yeah. Huge.
1: Even though it was so R rated and
0: everything. It was. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, I mean, HBO was kind of known for that at the time. And then I think, especially by this time that they'd uh, syndicated to Fox and they like did like edited versions. And that's how, like as a kid, I started watching them on Fox. Oh, the, right. The uh, PG-13 versions. Oh, my God. Um, that must
1: um, be interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, then you go back years later, like, oh, okay. Now I remember that. But even though, like, it had that reputation for adding more gore, more boobs, you know, compared to, to today, it's not, it's pretty tame. I mean, yes. it, you know, every it's all progressive.
1: Was a but long time ago,
0: wasn't it? It was just 30
1: years ago, some of it. And I, I remember Bo rang me up. I think the episode we did won awards I think he won he won some kind of i can't know what they called it now
0: they had awards
1: for i mean and it was like what that's great and probably a there, there
0: saturn was, or something
1: it was a cable uh, award series i can't remember who it was and he dragged me up laughed, giggling and and uh so I, I think people sort of i think people actually because of the scale of them they were quite a big scale weren't they I think people took notice of them from that point of view because the production value was big and the stars were big and, you know, and then I remember actually when I was directing one of them, I can't remember which was Arnold was on doing another one. He was directing in one at the same time, I think, in, in mm-hmm. the same studio one day.
0: So yeah. He them. did the, the switch. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, that was the director was, it's gotta look, it's gotta look big. It's gotta look uh, like a movie on TV. Um, yeah. So I'm looking up on Bo's IMDb. He won a Cable Ace Award for that episode, actor oh, there we that go. series. So <laughs> it paid off.
1: And I, anyway, he won awards for sound and all sorts of things too. I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Well. But, I think Tim Curry. I think might have gotten Emmy at least nominated for one, his episode. So oh, you like, did. Yeah, it was. It was definitely like people were, were were taking notice, especially with that much star power behind it. Yeah
1: yeah and TV then was so different was not it? On t- if you're on TV it was it was ne- it was network broadcast TV in those days it was there was no really serious adult television at the time
0: right and then you had like you know the keeper as like you know it was a superstar of everything like even if the episode wasn't great you still got a good Keeper beginning a good creep creeper ending so yeah. even even if it was wasn't wasn't the best episode ever you still had that like kind of dessert at the end.
1: And I think one of my episodes was put in one of the films too because I get I get like a two pounds 33 residuals once every year for it being in one of the in one of because the, they put out uh three or four tales of films and they with
0: right with
1: episodes I know one of them one of mine was in there I think
0: okay um, and then it's, it's kind of funny because I think there's definitely a bit of Freddy Krueger um, was influenced a bit by the EC Comics kind of jokey sides and then I, and then I think the TV version of the Crib Keeper is definitely based on Robert England's performance so it's kind of a, a circular right there's definitely DNA <laughs> throughout that
1: yeah if you put them side by side they'd be brothers wouldn't they they'd be siblings
0: oh, they'd, they'd be drinking buddies at least um <laughs> uh, do you have any other stories from your three episodes you want to share
1: gosh I'm sorry if it was in the last 25 years I might remember that <laughs> but, but no I just remember them being you know a lot of films I've done or TV things I've done they're all expensive and very serious and very intense and, uh, and I and I just remember how much fun we had I think on those things and Joel would come down and you just want everything to be bigger and louder and you know, dirtier and weirder and and uh it, it was never really any any sort of angst involved and, and I I never really dealt with HBO then. i you know done stuff for them since obviously but but they would keep everyone in the background and it would be it would just be it was really a, actually a very creative experience because you would just come up with ideas and then execute them. It was I was going, okay, okay give it a go. You know and and uh yeah, I don't think I we really had time to pull any hideous practical jokes with anyone or anything like that. Not like on, on movies that you have got months and, months and months and months to get reported with each other. <laughs> it's sort of, Is it's that something up- you're known for? Uh, well, certainly, yeah. I mean, I've done quite big films which take a long time to shoot, right? So in providing you have actors with a sense of humour, then, then you know, the movie Judgment Night where I have, there was just fantastic and hilarious and hellacious and the amount of practical jokes that went on on a daily basis. And, and uh, predator two was was such a huge production. I was only 28. Or something, I think and just running around Los Angeles blowing the shit out of things. And, mm-hmm. and, and there was no that was done during a writer's strike as well actually did two films in a row during two different writer's strikes. So oh, God. Yeah. I mean, Jim and John were around thank God, but we really off, we actually shot from a sort of document rather than a script. And so mm. we'd often find ourselves shooting stuff and hoping for the best. But I'm going to say the, the, uh, the tale stuff was really scripted properly. And I talked to Gil, I talked to the writers before, and you get time to prep it so you could make it as good as you could. It wasn't just rushed through and, and people really cared about it. And I, and I cared how it looked and how it, Worked and stuff like that. And I, and I you know, it's really, I can't remember many things I've enjoyed as much of that, or or actually have been as outrageously creative, you know, for the sake of it. There was no holes barred. There was no one to say, don't do that, you know, but just you're just encouraged to just uh, go and break rules. And, and, and with that in mind, I think all the actors really liked that. You know, Buck would come up with an idea or doing Beauty's Rest. The girl, the the ladies, the actresses would come up with bonkers ideas to make it even worse, and how their clothes were. So everyone was encouraged, I think, to have a great time. And then, you know, because I was allowed, because I I met Alan Silvestri through Joel on of the Two, so I was allowed to bring in these, you know, heavy hitters too, to do that kind of stuff. And uh, we shot it all down in Culver City, I think, right by the right by the by the the motorway there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the- Tiny Well, was it? It seemed, it seemed tiny, but it was it was tiny because it was all filled up with massive sets, usually from the next one or the last one, or being pulled down. We didn't obviously didn't shoot on location very much, I mean, not for those things. They were so, so specific. I remember at one point, I think Tracy Lord was in Abracadabra, mm. and then it happened at the end. I think she was, you know, they brought her in because she was supposed to be one of the you know, the naked girl who wakes up on the. Slab or something, and, and and neither she or I thought it was really that appropriate. So,
0: um, because she's been uh, in a couple episodes, um, oh, she was right. She's very smart. I
1: really liked her. Oh yeah, person.
0: yeah. No, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of her uh, dramatic work. Um, all right, so let's wrap up with some fun questions. So this is what I call the miscellaneous section. Um, obviously, you're a big comic book fan. Do you have a favorite run that you go back to?
1: Well, I've been reading them for 60 years now so yeah. uh, I've, I have sort of gave up you know, about 10-15 years ago with, from reading them all the time. I mean I think the Vertigo stuff was life-changing, obviously all the Frank Miller stuff. Mm-hmm. As a kid I loved Daredevil because he was like the strangest character and, and he'd go from you know dealing with someone on stilts to dealing with drug dealers in hell's kitchen and you know and
0: uh yeah
1: i never, i, I never really loved the full massive superhero ones i didn't mm-hmm. i didn't love hulk so much or Thor so much because they're a bit earnest when they really, I think and
0: yeah well and the best daredevils i always thought was when he's like in court trying to come up with you know ways to help his clients and stuff actually so i just i talked to bob gale a couple weeks ago and he did a whole uh-huh. Daredevil run for someone suing daredevil um, so he has to like right. appear in court and as a defendant, and he has to come up with all these wacky um, you know, workarounds.
1: Right.
0: That's really fun. Um, is there a comic character that you would love to adapt to the screen?
1: Uh yeah, I always wanted to do the Batman. I almost did it at one point. Uh, I, I always wanted to do Sandman at one point and mm. talk to one of us about doing it with um Tim Burton as a Sandman, actually, a long time oh,
0: ago. Oh, wow. And uh, That'd be interesting.
1: And then I I knew Jim Cameron quite well. I tried to do a Spider-Man movie in the early, in the 90s, mm-hmm. before the digital revolution, and we spent months and months working on it. But it was going to cost $200 million in those days, and it was going to take two years to shoot. Right. So Because you, you just had to do everything for real, you know. So so I've when- entered into I met Stanley. I wanted to do Doctor Strange. I met Stanley mm-hmm. a bunch of times. And I always wanted to do Doctor Strange. That was the one I thought would be the most fun, mind-bending. And I think they did a great version of it with that, the first one.
0: No, uh, I, I think, yeah, you would make a great stand, uh, uh Doctor Strange. I could definitely see that fitting. When mm-hmm. when were you in talks about doing Batman?
1: Oh, uh, I think back in the early eighty, uh, back in the early nineties, I mm-hmm. think. You before they decided who was doing it, I was sort of involved with Warner Brothers a lot then. And uh, I was probably one of 80, 800 directors who were, but I, I've right. started a couple of James Bond films and I just didn't end up doing them because they're just, I don't know, the scripts or whatever. And, but, you know, I always think know, yeah, Apprenticeship was kind of a
0: comic book film too. I think. Oh yeah, no, I think all your films are comic book movies, but yeah. Yeah, to a degree. Which is yeah. great. I love. That's. I think that's why I love. It. I mean, I'm a big fan of like Ghost in the Darkness and uh, Lost in Space and all those. I mean, I, I. That's kind of the movies I kind of grew up, or at least I was a teenager was watching. Right. You know? Um. That's that's kind of my segment, and I, you know, those are awesome movies. Um. All right. One of our traditional questions is that in the very first episode of Tales from the Crypt, the great William Sadler goes into a diner and asks for a cheese sandwich. It doesn't specify the cheese or the method or anything. If you were to do that, what kind of cheese? sandwich would you (laughs) want what kind of cheese
1: i'm kind of a big fan of raw sheep cheese so manchego would be mine i don't know if you'd find that made i even now i think i like i love myself a bit of manchego or or raw goat cheese Mm. i like to take that but good question i might have one right now
0: there you go and then our final question obviously, we're dads in the crypt and we give uh, dad advice, sometimes questionably, but um, as the crypt keeper would. But what kind of advice would you like to give our audience? Uh, what kind of advice? Mentor, fatherly advice.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, look for the signs and make sure you're not going down the wrong dark alley with the wrong people, I think.
0: Don't, don't you get pelted with uh, bags of feces.
1: <laughs> well, I remember once I had to do a shot and the, the, and the sun was coming up and the actors couldn't hear me because it was so far away. And the radio stopped working. I went, fuck it. So I just ran. And I was z- and I was zigzagging because the guy's, <laughs> Just running, doing this sort of zigzagging <laughs> up the alleyway to get my message across. And yeah, it was quite exciting. I think. Yeah. yeah, don't go up that alleyway unless you have to. And then, yeah, there's still a, even downtown has been they tried to gentrify, it. it's still pretty rough down there, especially with all the you know difficulties that LA is having right now. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't don't go running around shit alley at later uh,
0: three o'clock in the morning. No. That's great advice. Don't go down shit alley at the AM <laughs> Um And what are you working on next? What what's next in the hopper for you? Um, I don't know. I just spent a couple of years doing this thing for Apple called Liaison,
1: which is out now. There's the fifth episode, coming, sixth episode coming up well, next week. It's a sixth episode thing. It's a sort of big, weird, romantic, dark thriller, half in French. And we shot it in France and Belgium and Morocco and here during COVID. So it was a hell of mm-hmm. shoot. And uh, now I'm talking to a few different people about different things. I'm not sure what I've got next. Uh, my bank manager says I have to go back to work. So something's going to go wrong.
0: Excellent. Well, best of luck to you, Stephen. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Where can people find you? Are you? Um,
1: I don't really, I'm not really a social media person. I'm on Instagram. I think mm-hmm. Stephen James Hopkins, but nothing, just stupid shit from my friends, really. So, but
0: um, hey, if you, if you have an Instagram, start putting those storyboards on there. People will love it.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, if I can ever, find, I know where most of them are, I think. And then I had a, a bit of a flood, so some of them got stuck together. But I still have tons. So I've still got. And I, and I have. When I did Night round Street Five, I, I flew from Sydney, where I was timed to LA, and I was the fire back seat on this really shitty flight with, uh, in you know, in the economy, right at the very back. And I was drawing these huge storyboards all the way, and the people next to me. Hated me. I had all these crayons and stuff. I did massive storyboards because it's lot of flight. I got straight off the plane, took the storyboards to New Line, and got the job. I found them the other day. So they're you know it's just lots of nuns and gargoyles and and Freddy's. In fact, Peter Levy, my the DP who shoots almost everything I do and has done for 40 years now, he he and I are two of Freddy's fathers. were in the mental asylum. Oh really? Yeah, we actually rape his mother. As oh. you do and uh but we were so we were so prominent when the editor put it together i was like no you can't just be all over us like i'm not sure if we're still in it maybe we are
0: sure. that's funny hmm. all right well that wraps things up i appreciate everyone for listening and with that we thank you for listening to dads from the Crypt. <laughs> thanks a <so>, lot mate
1: <laughs> follow dads from the crypt on facebook twitter and Instagram, or I will follow
0: you to the grave. (laughs) No, seriously, you really should watch, but be careful what you ask for. You may get it.